0: Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com.
3: say some frustration I have that over the last few years, as the number of what I would call identity-driven cyber attacks has exploded, uh, driven by hostile nation states, driven by organized criminals, the federal government doesn't have an overarching strategy actually laying out what we should be doing here. Um, Now, we were pretty excited back in March, the Biden administration put out their national cybersecurity strategy. Strategic Objective 4.5 was support development of a digital identity ecosystem. When the implementation plan came out for that in July, they just skipped from section 4.4 to section 4.6 as if digital identity had never been in there. That's a little bit alarming. It was the only strategic objective in the strategy to get this treatment. Um, To be clear, it's not just the White House I'm pointing to. Congress has for several years now been considering a bipartisan bill called the Improving Digital Identity Act that would essentially task the White House to do what they chose not to do in the implementation plan that bill you know, continues to get close across the finish line and then some people have decided, nah, we're gonna block it. And again, the point was, when you block it, that is a conscious decision to do nothing.
2: Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Recently, I had the opportunity to host Jeremy Grant and Jordan Burris for a fireside chat to discuss the state of digital identity in government. These are two heavy hitters in this space, so I thought my listeners would want to hear what these two had to say on the matter, especially considering that identity management was ranked near the top of every CIO's priority list. Jeremy established and led the National Program Office for the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, housed in the National Institute of Standards and Technology, better known as NIST. There, he directed the Obama administration's activities across private and public sectors to drive a marketplace of more secure privacy-enhancing identity solutions for online services. He also served as NIST's Senior Executive Advisor for Identity Management and led efforts to improve identity and authentication for individuals and devices in the NIST roadmap for improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity. And Jordan, who's a returning contributor to this show, served as the Chief of Staff to the Federal CIO at the Office of Management and Budget and is the Vice President of Public Sector Strategy at SoCure and he recently was invited to join the board of directors of the identity theft resource center itrc gentlemen welcome and thanks for joining for this important conversation thanks brian hey jordan let's start with you um if you want to introduce yourself you're the vice president of public sector strategy at Socure. here. why don't you give a quick introduction to your background and also what you did in government
1: yeah sure thanks so uh you know for for me in particular working with Socure, my my goal is to partner really with government leaders to really help them refine their strategies as it relates to identity verification and fraud prevention overall when i worked in government it was in the uh, office of management budget or the the white house office of Management budget rather uh in the office of the federal cio there i served as chief of staff helping to run a number of initiatives um 24 7 gig but notably some of the items i worked with were um, various aspects of our cybersecurity um, strategies, uh, various executive orders uh, related to um, cybersecurity and to include um, issuing various OMB memos. Uh, and, and one of the ones that you know I'm proud of is OMB M1917. Definitely some work that we can do to modernize that based on the evolving uh, threat landscape. But for for the time period, I know that was one that uh, basically took off You know, a decade plus worth of legacy policy and and, and helped bring it to at least where it was um, back in the 2018-2019 time
2: Excellent. Thanks, Jordan. And Jeremy, you're the Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable. Why don't you introduce yourself and also talk a little bit about what you did in government as well leading up to this?
3: Sure, so uh, glad to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm uh, part of Venable's uh, technology and innovation practice. Uh, I've been here uh, about six years now, but I've been working for more than 25 years at the intersection of identity and cybersecurity. Uh, starting as a Senate staffer in the late 90s, I then spent uh, a number of years in industry actually building uh, different identity security solutions. Then a couple stints at investment banks, helping the investment community sort of understand um, you know, the opportunities in that space, what technologies work and what don't, and also where government's going with it. Um, And then had a second stint in government leading the digital identity team at NIST as part of a job uh, running a White House initiative that was launched back in 2011 called the National Strategy for Trusted Identities Mm -hmm. in Cyberspace. So, um, you know, been around the space for a while, have maybe a strong opinion or two in terms of what government should be doing. Uh, With Inventable, I serve as a coordinator of a group called the Better Identity Coalition, which is... A couple dozen companies, largely from the buy side of identity, think banks and health firms and whatnot that are really dependent on better identity solutions, but also a lot of the vendors as well. And we're focused on what I would call the policy layer of what the government needs to be doing in the digital identity space.
2: Awesome. Yeah, and I know you have some strong opinions and we're going to start with those. You recently wrote an op-ed for The Hill titled, Why is your government taking a backseat on digital identity issues? I thought it was a well, very well written Tell us how you kind of, or why you feel that this is the case—that government is taking a backseat on these digital identity issues.
3: Well, it was funny. The the Hill gave it a little bit of a different title. Backseat wasn't the term I used, but the the sometimes when you write an op-ed, you get a a different title from the editor. But the point I actually made in the op-ed, and it was echoed in the body of it, was that doing nothing is a policy choice. Mm -hmm. And you know, this was trying to remind people of you know sometimes when we choose say not to advance a bill because it's not perfect on something. Well, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And the alternative is doing nothing, which is essentially a vote for the status quo and that things should continue. And, you know, there's, I'd say, some frustration I have that over the last few years, as the number of what I would call identity-driven cyber attacks has exploded, uh, driven by hostile nation states, driven by organized criminals. um, Identity theft has been skyrocketing across multiple sectors. The federal government doesn't have an overarching strategy actually laying out what we should be doing here. Um, Now, we were pretty excited back in March, the Biden administration put out their national cybersecurity strategy, strategic objective 4.5 was support development of a digital identity ecosystem. It actually was a pretty well-written piece. When the implementation plan came out for that in July, they just skipped from section 4.4 to section 4.6 as if digital identity had never been in there. and. You know, that's a little bit alarming. It was the only strategic objective in the strategy to get this treatment, aside from one on privacy, where they had previously said, well, this is something for Congress to go pass a law. Um, To be clear, it's not just the White House I'm pointing to. Congress has, for several years now, been considering a bipartisan bill called the Improving Digital Identity Act that would essentially task the White House to do what they chose not to do in the implementation plan. That bill, you know, continues to get close across the finish line, and then some people have decided... Nah, we're going to block it. And again, the point was, when you block it, that is a conscious decision to do nothing. And so the op-ed, I think, was, you know, a bit of a call to action to point out doing nothing year after year is a clear policy choice, and it's not a very good one.
2: Jordan, I know you have some opinions on this, too. And you've spoken recently on the omission of identity in that recent White House guidance around cybersecurity. I'm curious, what were you hoping to see when that came out? And what do you think we might see in any upcoming guidance
1: around digital identity? Yeah, I mean I think the the reality is is I was hoping to see much to, much of what Jeremy pointed out something uh being, you know, either forecasted, talked about or, you know, some type of action being taken. I you know, I've, I've remarked um, you know, previously that back in the it was the 2018 time frame while I was still in government, you know, we tried to lead, lead some type of initiative to evaluate what had to evolve related to, you know, identity what had to evolve related to proofing and really try to, you know, get get ahead of the the next curve. Right. And then, you know, fast forward a few years, nothing really changed within the ecosystem. Nothing really changed within government in particular with all of the discussion. And I know the investment and, 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 and funding that have been put out to evaluating what could be done different, not only from a fraud prevention standpoint, but then also we start to talk about equity. For me, it was like, okay, it's time for kind of the lip service to end and, and really get to, um, Discrete actions, in particular. If you take it and look at a different part of the identity equation, and you're looking at discussions related to multi-factor authentication, they're numerous. There's efforts where there's you know work being done uh, hand in hand with industry to to evaluate the problem. And yet, when it came to you know what I would say is one of the kind of the bigger crises that we're seeing um, within the U.S. related to to proofing and really uh, managing how we evaluate fraud and do so in an equitable fashion. nothing's being said. So for starters, something would have been there. But, you know, more concretely, when we're looking at the types of things that, you know, could have been included and that, you know, we can advocate for Look, the reality is I I continue to highlight that transparency is needed as we look at the types of solutions that are being deployed in the market. Why? Because when and it's not a new thing, it's not a novel approach. It's being deployed in many other government programs in particular, especially if you start to look at learning agendas or the work that's being done, done for data driven policy. The idea here being is that by understanding the metrics associated with what good looks like, you're able to better craft options and solutions for folks down the road. More importantly, when you're trying to weigh policy decisions that would um you know what maybe get passed in a bill or what maybe get passed in an executive order, you then have data to back it up versus taking a shot in the air. And I think for, for us and where we are at this pivotal moment, we need to move beyond just taking shots in the dark and, and really start to establish those foundational mechanisms that are going to allow us to make really smarter decisions for the long run. So right, so you know to again to be concrete like at the, at the very least, I would have expected and you know hoped still to see something related to just improve transparency both from the government standpoint, but then also I think mandates that can be broadly given out um, towards industry in order to get everyone on the same page about you know what what does it mean to do identity verification well, what does it mean um, to create systems that um, increase access uh, for individuals.
2: Jeremy, you mentioned your op-ed was a call to action. Any response there? Anything you wanted to add in terms of what you're hoping to see? with that call to action and any type of guidance coming down as well?
3: Yeah, well, first, I want to flag that just because I said doing nothing's a policy choice does not mean nothing's happening in government. There's actually a lot of great work being done in a number of agencies to advance things. In sort of chunks that are notable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, login.gov is working on trying to solve identity proofing just for people applying for government services and benefits. The TSA last night just put out draft regulations on mobile drivers licenses but only focused on the TSA use cases of what it will take to recognize a digital driver's license on your phone when you're going through a TSA checkpoint, not looking more broadly at the way that those could also be used in online use cases for identity proofing. NIST is working on updated digital identity guidelines. Uh, We're seeing a lot of states focus on age verification laws. There's a lot of activity happening, but what's lacking is an overarching strategy that sort of defines, what do we want this all to look like holistically? And what does good look like? And what are some of the risks that might prevent us from getting to good? And, you know, start to lay out a plan of how we have a whole of government effort to get there. And and when I talk about the need for a whole of government effort, look, one of the things we have seen from the White House, they announced, I think it was all the way back in the March, 2022 State of the Union, that they want to put out an identity theft executive order focusing sort of narrowly on identity theft in government benefits programs. And to be clear, That's a really big issue. I mean, we saw this during the pandemic where, um, you know, it was, you know, the the identity theft just absolutely exploded as, you know, organized criminals and hostile nation states came in and exploited our deficiencies in digital identity infrastructure to steal. The estimates are either in the high tens or low hundreds of billions. Whatever the number is, it's really problematic. Uh, And so it's important to see attention there. I think the problem with focusing only on government benefits is that it is the same organized criminals and hostile nation states that are taking advantage of the same two or three deficiencies in digital identity infrastructure to steal from government and banks and FinTech apps and healthcare and retail and cryptocurrency exchanges. Americans are being victimized across all of those sectors. And the idea that you can only solve it in the government without sort of taking a broader look at those deficiencies in digital identity infrastructure that are making Americans vulnerable everywhere you're really going to fall short, not to say there aren't some half measures you should, you could take to make some things better in the government space. But the goal should be not to stop identity theft and government benefits. The goal should be stop identity theft, period, or at least greatly reduce it. And so I think that is at a high level more than anything else, what we think the White House and Congress should be focusing on is how do you look at this issue holistically? And again, define what good is, define the things that might prevent us from getting there and come up with some uh you know, actions that you can take to make sure that we actually end up setting a high bar for security, privacy, equity, interoperability. That's really how we start to solve this problem in the next few years.
2: Jordan, if you can throw your OMB hat on real quick, I just want to do a quick Mm -hmm. follow-up. Jeremy hit on a really good point that there are some um, innovations around digital identity happening in pockets within government. What would you recommend as a way to kind of lift uh, lift the curtain on what's happening and kind of spread that wealth of knowledge and that innovation and, and the lessons learned within those types of programs across government-wide.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think the, re- the reality is, that, and, and to Jeremy's point, it, the, there needs to be a champion um, ultimately, right? Whether it be at OMB's level, whether it be in a different White House um, component that, that is for the administration to, to determine, of course, I have my own thoughts uh, related to, to, to who should be responsible for it. But the, but the reality here is that you, you need a champion who is willing to bring all of those disparate pieces together because a lot of what Jeremy highlighted are just organic things that continue to happen because there are very passionate individuals within government who are continuing to work on these issues, right? like They have been working on these issues um, from my time in government and predating my time in government, and they continue to try to push these things forward. What we're not seeing though is the recognition that just generally our identity infrastructure is broken. Um, and, and and fragmented in particular and then you know it does take that overarching uh, champion to, to bring it all together but not just bring it all together from a policy standpoint also start to align the investments that are being made um, from the budget and even the signaling working with congress across um, the aisle in order to just to really determine what could be done what does that blueprint what does that roadmap um, look like and, and just circling back on my point on you know the infrastructure being broken, you know, I've said before um, publicly, and I'll say it again today, right, identity really should be looked at and viewed as critical infrastructure. It it must start to be viewed in that way so much so that if if you look at, um, CISA puts out these national um, uh, critical functions, right, just deemed vital to the continued operation of government. They, um, a few years ago, designated identity and access management uh, solutions as being one of those. And the reason why they did it was because they know that that is one of the most pervasive areas and where Um, we're getting attacked in particular. And a lot of focus continues to be on things such as enterprise identity, what we are doing internal to the organization in particular. But we're not paying enough attention to what is happening externally and much to we're looking at the impacts to people. When this goes wrong, we have increased um, instances of um, identity theft and folks just being further left out uh, of processes. In particular you know one of the one of the groups I, I support and sit on the board of uh is the identity theft resource center uh and you know just to hear the the victims and and what they're struggling to do when it comes to reasserting their identity after it's been compromised that's not something that in this day and age we should continue to leave to just manual processes in particular right so i mean i think you know just a, a very quick action someone uh, could do uh in my old Uh, inside of OMB or within the executive office of the president broadly outside of championing it, they could basically work to make a declaration that it's something that would be added uh, essentially as a critical infrastructure for, um, for, for the U S much as it's the same type of recognition that is getting uh, made across other countries uh, in particular.
2: I want to stay with you real quick, Jordan. Um, We've seen a lot written and talked about artificial intelligence, I'm curious, How does gov- or what does government need to know about this technology and how it can impact their identity programs?
1: Anyway, the, the reality when it comes to any type of technology, any type of emerging technology, is that there's a potential for it to be used for good, there's a potential for it to be used for bad. Far too often, whenever emerging technology is being discussed, there is the lean, the heavy lean towards, you know, we'll just start with only the bad, And by starting and and diving only into the bad, we prevent ourselves from being able to explore what could be done to make things better and more secure. If you think about it in in what's happening on the ground, though, uh, nation states, criminal enterprises are not hamstrung by leveraging these technologies. They they use it day in and day out. And if we're talking about like using um, AI for an example to, you know, attack uh, or, or commit some type of cyber incident on a system, they're not beholden to avoiding that, right? Which is why you're seeing the government start to adopt things from incident response, leveraging these types of tools. The Same thing is critical when it comes to identity. Um, there's a lot of tools that are being deployed today. There's you know, a lot of collaboration that is happening in particular. And so when it comes to the AI conversation broadly, there just has to be the recognition with that and any emerging technology, right? It, waiting to try to solve for perfection uh, is not something that we really have the luxury to do. um, Because again, um, those who do uh, wrong are using it. Instead, we need to be, you know, adopting more guardrails and understanding how can we, I would say fail fast or adopt uh, a mindset of continuous innovation such that you can incorporate the right types of technology for the right purpose uh, at any particular time. Mm -hmm. Right. And these aren't, again, aren't new concepts. These are all things that have been talked about before. There's even an executive order, an older executive order that's still in the books, um, related to promoting trustworthy use of AI uh, within um, the, the federal government. And it sets out the principles that need to be adopted, right? And so understanding there's, you know, um, policy changes and, and, and focus changes, there's still things that are in place that could be built upon in order to try to get ahead of what um, what we're seeing broadly here.
2: Jeremy, I know you have an opinion on this because in that same op-ed I I referenced earlier, you talked about generative AI in context to identity. Could you explain how that technology specifically is impacting the industry?
3: Sure. And I think it gets back to the point of it's yet another emerging issue where we need a strategy and where I think getting things right on identity is, you know, there's an opportunity to get ahead of the threat. Uh, There's also a real problem if we don't pay attention to it. And I think, you know, the way I would describe the, the threat from generative AI, although I think there's also some real benefits on the security side that Jordan talked about, is, you know, we've been talking for a few years about this concept of zero trust in the enterprise cybersecurity space, but it's, you know, it's a little bit dry. It sort of means, well, hey, somebody's moving around your network, you know, don't trust them, authenticate them every time. But you're talking about somebody who works for you. I think zero trust is about to head toward a very dark place in sort of the broader, you um, you know american psyche where with generative ai advancing so quickly any voice you hear online any photo any video it's going to become increasingly hard to tell if it's a real person or if it's a deep fake and we're already starting to see some of these uh generative ai fueled attacks you know being used to among other things try and uh you know spoof people to pass remote identity verification systems and again the technology is advancing at a very rapid pace And so how do you start to think about what does the world look like when we suddenly can't trust what we see or hear anymore? Because I think that's something that we've been depending on for a while. For example, one of the fallbacks we've seen with remote identity proofing has been, well, let's go to a trusted referee, somebody who's going to sit on the other end of a video screen like the three of us are doing right now. And I'll, you know, try and squint at you and figure out if it's really Brian and you'll hold up a driver's license. If all of that can be faked by AI, that suddenly makes that a lot less effective. Um, So, you know, two thoughts on that. One, I think, you know, one of the best weapons we have at our disposal to protect against it is actually gonna be AI-enabled tools that might be able to detect and defend against when we're seeing these technologies being used against us in ways that maybe the human eye won't be able to easily discern. Um, I also have pointed out in a number of conversations, the one thing that AI is not able to spoof Yet, at least, is public key cryptography. And so, when we talk about digital mobile credentials that might be bound to a public private key, um, say in the consumer space, you know, protected hardware on your smartphone, I think it's going to be playing a more important role going forward in that this this whole question of proof of humanity online, I think, is going to be getting more and more attention. um, And you know leveraging credentials that are bound to you know strong asymmetric public key cryptography i think is going to be one of the tools that if we're strategic about it might help us stay ahead of some of these attacks
2: um jordan i want to come over to you because something jeremy said made me really think about kind of the equitable side of things right and government agencies are increasingly taking this into consideration on the value of diversity equity inclusion and as they work on this it can really combat systemic inequities. You, I know, have made this an important pillar of your work while at OMB. And I'm curious, what does government need to know about how identity verification technology can bolster equitable access to services?
1: Yeah, I think it it, it comes down to making sure And I think just the the overarching premise, right, making sure that you find ways to solve for the gaps and what exists uh, today, right, and you're leaving uh, room to continue to innovate for the things that just haven't been solved yet, right? I, I, I once sat in a room and I, I asked a bunch of folks and I was saying, okay, who here can raise their hand and tell me if we've, through technology, have solved the challenges that we see with equity as it relates to identity today? No one can raise their hand because them. it was a trick question. We, we haven't yet, right? There's still many gaps that exist. Um, but what we need to be doing is, is leaning into identifying a what those are, and not, if you will, ignoring them or continue. I would say to um, bucketize uh, what huh, using that word, um, but but uh, put put folks into like a category and and to to think that you know it, it's okay that they have a a less than experience uh, for for an example. Um, I, you know when uh, growing up i used public transportation um most most of my life i actually didn't get a car until um i was you know mid-20s uh in in particular it would have been so foreign to me to think and i probably wouldn't have done it is if i had to prove myself online for any number of reasons i lost my job or something along those lines to potentially go wait two three hours maybe in the pouring rain to go show up at an office in person then only to be told that um, you may not have everything that you need in order to prove your identity uh, at the end of the day, and therefore you got to go home and you know get everything and then come back and so on and so forth. It would have been so much that I would have t- been turned off completely from from the process. And there are many a times where I've had to do things, not necessary for proving identity, but for other scenarios where that was the case, right. And so I didn't do it. Um, and that that's just the reality there. We need to be finding ways to bring people into the process, folks who are otherwise disenfranchised, underserved uh, in particular, and not assuming that just because we may make something available in person, that it is the easy route for them uh, at the end of the day, right? Um, and and so I, I think, you know, just broadly when it comes to this, when it comes to equity, just largely for DEIA, really, for Um, The solutions, it's just important that we're understanding all the aspects associated associated with it, right? We're understanding what is happening to different demographics. We're understanding what inclusion practices will look like. Are we getting the right voices uh, in the room as the solutions are being designed? Are we solving for systemic barriers as we start to look at equity considerations? And then from accessibility, we just can't lose sight of that. So that's why I say DEIA nowadays. But it's because we, we cannot lose sight of accessibility. There's a lot of work the federal government's done. Related to it, but you know, again, is is everyone perfectly 508 compliant at a bare bare minimum? Uh, No, Uh, and so as a result, you know, we just should be continuing to strive to hit just a higher bar so that we confirm that everyone has a has has a path to be able to engage um, in their their chosen method um, for uh, service delivery.
2: Jeremy, anything you wanted to add there around the DEI conversation?
3: Yeah, I think just to echo what Jordan said, I think the fact that it's getting a lot more attention in the identity space is a really positive development. I think for so many years, we've looked at this largely from a security perspective, um, and, you know, have failed to pay enough attention to, look, we, we drove the real ID act into law, you know, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks a few years afterwards when Congress passed that law in 2005, it made it much harder for people to go get a physical ID, uh, in the, you know, the world. And, um, like I've been lucky. I'm I'm privileged. I've never had this problem. But if you don't have an ID, there's a lot of things you can't do. And, you know, for somebody who may have been in and out of homelessness or, you know, perhaps, you know, was evicted and, you know, they're, you know, maybe forget a driver's license. They had a social security card and a birth certificate that was left in a, you know, box by the side of the road that then washed away in the rain. Somebody who's you know fleeing a domestic abuse situation and has nothing but the clothes on their back and is, you know, trying to get started. What do you actually do if you don't have any documentation of who you are? Uh-huh. It's really hard to get started. And I think a lot of the you know, well-intentioned uh, decisions that were made to make some of the issuance processes more secure have also had the impact of excluding a lot of people. And now that we talk about closing this gap between the physical credentials we use in the, the physical world and you know the lack of anyone online, we need to make sure that we're not exacerbating those inequities, and actually maybe go back and sort of look at the um, the problems that we've caused, and you know rethink how we can potentially serve populations that might be on the margins of society, uh, so that their you know identity doesn't become a tool to exclude them from participation in society.
1: And I think, and I think, just to you know quickly circle back on that, and to Jeremy's point uh, that he earlier made is that like we haven't necessarily found a way for. AI to break things like MDLs or you know mobile driver's license technology, we still require in order to be issued them or to have them accepted and across states in particular that folks go through the Reality Act, right? So like there's just things that I think, as to his point, as we're making things better, more secure, there's still fundamental gaps that we need to make, which is why. Um, taking it back to the earlier part of our conversation, if we start to declare this as corporate infrastructure, we start to evaluate all the aspects associated with it, we start to look at how we can apply transparency mechanisms about a continuous improvement and outcomes, we can maybe get to a place where we are making strides to advance um, and, and, and actually improve the ecosystem overall, which is, I believe, what they intended when they wrote the National um, Cyber Strategy and they released, right, fostering a better ecosystem. I think that's the, that's ultimately how we get there.
2: As we wrap up, I have one more question I want to I want to pose to both of you. And I'm glad the the last uh, last set of answers we kind of brought in really placed a lot of emphasis on the the human side of things. And as we wrap, um, I, I want to know from each of you what's your hope for the future of government digital services, and how does identity play a part? Let's start with you, Jeremy.
3: Well, I think from my perspective, you know, the future of government digital services is that identity is not such a big deal. In that, you know, how would I say it? The the use case we put most Americans through, if they're trying to do something with the government, federal, state, or local level online, where the risk model is such that you really need to know who they are in order to offer that service, should not be let's you know, shove you into the corner here so you can spend 15 or 20 minutes, you know, jumping through a bunch of hoops and uploading a bunch of information about yourself so that we guess who you are. You know, that is not a really good customer experience. Um, and I've been a little bit concerned in that that seems to be the vision that at least some agencies feel like they're stuck with right now because they're not really sure where else to go. Uh, and so, you know, I think what we want to get to is, Can I just have an entity who's already issued me a credential, maybe it was a driver's license who I went to the DMV a couple of years ago, be able to vouch for me when I need to prove who I am? And that could be something like a mobile driver's license app, or it might be a way to tap into attribute validation services that, you know, that could be used in concert with a private company like SoCure to, you know, try and figure out who's who. But the model really should be streamlined. And we shouldn't be, you know, putting up identity as a barrier to accessing government services. It ought to be something that's seamless and behind the scenes and, enables better customer experiences rather than degrades them.
2: Jordan.
1: Yeah, I mean, generally what what I'm looking for us to do is to continue push for seamless, right? And I think that's just the moniker that I would use for identity in particular. It must be seamless because, you know, if we look at the way we operate in our lives when we're looking to uh, enact an age commercial service in particular right we we're striving towards a better experience the same thing should be done for for the for the government broadly and more importantly if we look at where the us is positioned as compared to other countries we're lagging severely behind all right there's there's definitely um, betters, um better experiences that can be produced um for individuals uh, and and so and a lot of this takes starting off with a, a strategy. So what I would like us to get to is a point where there's not as much uh, infighting or, or hesitation about diving into identity, and that we're actually putting in place the necessary things to push towards the um, the north star, if you will, of creating a, a seamless experience for those looking to access government services.
2: Well, Jordan and Jeremy, thanks so much for for spending the time and kind of unpacking a lot of the different aspects of digital identity and government, which obviously there's still a lot of questions out there. Um, I think you guys both brought some very good, uh, very good insights, very good opinions on what could be done, what should be done uh, moving forward. So appreciate the time today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: And for those listening, thanks so much for spending uh, a few minutes with us as we unpack digital identity and government.